Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Food Network had a deal with the Las Vegas Food and Wine Festival, where every year they sent a celebrity or two to the festival. And that year, whoever they were going to send fell through. And so they, were, they said, we're going to send celebrity chef Adam Roberts. And so like there were all these events with celebrity chef Adam Roberts. And one of them was a cactus cooking competition in front of Caesar's Palace. And it was me against Lorraine Bracco. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today is Adam Roberts Day on the Taste Podcast. I'm so excited to have him here. He's he is the original, original food blogger, I would say, one of like four or five in that category, and behind the Amateur Gourmet, which is now a Substack that you can subscribe to. We talk about what it's like to build a food blog empire and you know work on the Food Network from time to time. We talk about his time working in television, working in a writer's room, which is very different from food blogging, but also quite similar. What a great episode with Adam Roberts. Adam Roberts, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to be here in person. We are in the studio, and and often we've done. I've done your podcast. You invited me very kindly to do yours, and uh, you're mostly based in LA. But you've been going back and forth. Yeah, I'm. My husband Craig is a filmmaker, and he's uh, editing a movie here in New York. So he's just just getting set up here. He was shooting the movie in um, Concord, Massachusetts. So I was going back and forth from there, and now I get yeah. to go to New York, which is a little more exciting. Let me ask you, so when you're editing a movie, I can imagine it's like a, a, a editing bay or two, mm-hmm. and there's like somebody who works at the at the editing facility. Are they ordering lunch every day? Yes, that's so funny, because last night I had dinner with Craig, and I was like, how was your day? What did you have for lunch? And he thought that was so funny that like, that was my immediate <laughs> question, was like, what did you have for lunch? Like, not like, how did the edit go? No. How's the movie? Is it good? So, Adam, I, you're you're the amateur gourmet. I mean, you don't need much of an introduction, though. I will be giving you an introduction <laughs> at the beginning of this episode, which you would have heard and you know a little bit about you. But you are, in my estimate, an original OG food blogger. I mean, you, you're part of this wave of food bloggers that were part of our culture in food media in the early 2000s. So I would like to start by getting a little bit about how you got into "Quote unquote food blogging." I feel like you can read. You, you can like you can own that term, by the way, right? Food, food blogging. blogging? Yeah. yeah, I mean it's weird because um, I had like on my Twitter like original food blogger or one of the first food <laughs> bloggers, and then somebody's like, "Who does this guy think he is?" So I got rid of that because um, Twitter's terrible. But yeah, it's uh, very bad. Yep. But yeah, I mean, I started in 2004, if you can believe it. I was in law school. Uh, which was a huge mistake. I yeah. went there to please my parents, which is not a good reason to go. And I came from a family where nobody cooked. And so I just started cooking weirdly. Like I just came home and I would watch the Food Network and I would just start making things that were often disasters because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. And there was a forum on the internet called Eagle It. Yeah, of course, Eagle It. Yeah, sure. Like like a Chowhound rival. Yeah. yeah. And I discovered that. I think Calvin Trillin had written an article about it in The New Yorker, which is where I read about it. And I started writing little posts on there. And then I went to Chicago to visit a friend, and we had dinner at Charlie Trotter's. Yeah. And 
we had never been to, I'd never been to like a fine dining place like that before. And it was so intimidating and it was so freaky and intense that I wrote this like scathing review on Eagle. It just sort of like kind of glibly, like I was like a 22 year old, just like, ah, Charlie, Tr-. I called it Charlie Trotter super dud, like Jesus Christ <laughs> superstar. And funny. it went viral and it got tons and tons of angry commenters like, who do you think you are? And then Anthony Bourdain came into the chat and defended me. And he said, like, more cats in the temple, I think, meaning like I threw yeah. a cat into the temple. Yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, to make a long story short, I had friends at the time. They're like, you should start a blog. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is a blog? Yeah, like, yeah. Literally, like, I was like, what blogging? is a blog? Yeah. And so I just went on, I think it was Word, not even WordPress. I think it was Blogger. Not blogger, hmm. like blogspot. We're, or we're like, getting into like old school CMS talk. I like this. Yeah, like yeah. This is going. And yeah. then I just needed to enter and each, you know, I had to give a name to it. So I just wrote amateur gourmet and I just, it was just a whim. And then uh, that, that was the beginning. I love that. And I, I feel like uh, you give yourself, uh, you're, you're being modest, but you know, you were uh, a voice, you, you know, you have a real point of view and, and early on. That's what blogging was about. It was about having that really distinct voice, definitely having takes before the word takes was even a thing. It was like, it was more like you had a, uh, a post, you know, <laughs> but like describe that early cooking internet because that early cooking internet, I'm, I'm going to say Serious Eats was founded around that time. Yeah. Who else were your peers in the industry? Well, definitely David Leibovitz. Um, Shout, yeah. In course. fact, like he wrote me an email Right when I started, because he wrote, you know, he was like, "Hi, I have a food blog too. Aww. I like what you're doing." And I was like, "Who is this? Who is this weird guy?" And then like <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, he's like a famous cookbook author." And and so it was him. It was Deb Perelman at Smitten Kitchen. It was Heidi Swanson at 101 Cookbooks. Yeah. Clotilde Soulier at Chocolate and Zucchini, and Ben Leventhal and Lockhart Steele at Eater, yeah. which was very different back then. Very different Eater, very like like snarkier Eater. I mean, yeah. Leibowitz still to this day, same with Deb, both have been guests on our podcast, just absolutely had a vision and had a point of view, right, for mm-hmm. what they were doing, yes. Ben and, and Lockhart as well. So what was your point of view then, the amateur gourmet? Well, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, I always yeah. had been developing my voice as a nonfiction humorist, I guess you could say. And really discovering Calvin Trillin was was a gateway for me because I was like, oh, because I love food, I love cooking, and I like to write funny stuff. This guy does both. I want to do that. And so he was the model that I sort of— Cal, Cal yeah, yeah, Calvin. Yeah, I— um He's a name that we don't talk about enough in food media, and mm-hmm. I think he's, uh, you know, he's older now, so I hope oh, he's yeah. doing okay. I saw his play he had a about play. Alice. Yeah, he wrote a play, um, um, and it was staged here, and we can talk about theater later because <laughs> you're involved. But yeah, he wrote a play that was staged in Brooklyn maybe like two or three years ago. Was he in it? No, no, he he just wrote it. It was about his wife and his, the dynamic between him and his wife. Yeah, yeah. I re- about Alice. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a great article about losing her. But yeah, yeah I mean, just, there's something about, I guess, like the lack of pretension in his writing about food. And mm-hmm. I remember he had, a, he had a book called Feeding a Yen, which was the first book mm-hmm. of his that I read. And the first essay was about how his daughters had moved away and how the thing that they missed the most in New York was the pumpernickel bagel that they used to have growing up. Yeah. And he basically said if he could find a good pumpernickel bagel, he, he hoped his daughters could move back. And like that was sort of the idea. And it was just sort of this emotional, funny, poignant essay yeah. about the pumpernickel bagel, but really also about his children. And I just... Loved that. Like, I love that it was human and 
not about like you know how much flour or what kind of wheat was used. It was more about the like human connection to food. Yeah, he was like a lesser erudite writer than some of those New Yorker guys. And I feel like what he brings is like he's from like the middle, like Midwest, yeah. and, and a real sensibility. Um, and I think that uh, the humor comes out. And I think for your writing, you're a very funny guy. Like you Thank write, you. and like you, when you host, you host a podcast as well, and it's very funny. Like you've got great lines. And you went to you went to school. Uh, at NYU to to write for television, TV, <laughs> film, uh, and stage. So, what interests you in that world? I'd like to get a little bit of that background because you also went to work in Hollywood too. Yeah, I have a very weird, inexplicable life. But yeah. um, I mean, I always, again, like in college, I loved writing, and I wrote a play in college that won an award. And then when I went to law school, I basically was miserable, as I said. And so I started my food blog, but I also wrote a play in, in law school that I submitted to NYU's grad program on a lark, like totally, yeah, almost like secretly. I was like, well, if I got into that program, then maybe I should be like a writer. And then I got in uh, and it was sort of mind blowing. So I moved to New York and that's actually how I met my husband because he was in film school at NYU. Yeah. And then I was in the dramatic writing program. And I, I mean, I went there for the wrong reasons because... As we were talking about before we started, I love musicals, mm-hmm. and I was, and that was my gateway into theater. Um, and so I went there as a playwright, and the the playwriting teachers that I had included like Marcia Norman. Mm-hmm. She was my my master's advisor, and she wrote Night Mother and won the Pulitzer Prize about a woman who commits suicide, you know, in the house with her mother. And so like a lot of the stuff they were teaching was like kitchen sink drama, it's like dramaturge, right? Yeah, dra- yeah, like really serious drama. And yeah. I was like writing goofy, weird musical <laughs> theatery plays. So yeah. there was a dis- connect and then all the tv writing teachers were like you need to write comedy like you should yeah. be in tv and i was like how dare you right i'm i'm working on art guys yeah like don't, i'm not gonna go write a 30 minute sitcom yeah exactly yeah. i thought i was too good for it oh, little God. did i know how difficult it is to actually get work in tv and so um yeah years later i, fi- I finally used what i learned at nyu and i was able to write for a tv show yeah let's talk about that you got staffed on a show which you know is very hard like you know it's it's you're very modest but like it's a hard thing to do to break into hollywood and you you were staffed on a sitcom mm-hmm. um so what what's what show was it was it was it good was it a good show yeah it was called the real o'neills okay and it was in the, on the same block at, on abc with like blackish and shows like that and it was yeah. sort of so the, it's network it was network nice. but it was sort of trying to do what blackish did in terms of black culture, I was trying to do that with gay culture. It was a gay teenager in a Catholic mm-hmm. family, and Martha Plimpton played the Yo. mother. Yeah, nice. And um, Noah Galvin, from who ended up doing like Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway and stuff, he was the star. And I got that job, strangely enough. Um, so I moved to L.A. I was still a food writer. I'd written a yeah. cookbook that had just come out. Mm-hmm. But my husband had gone to a meeting with his TV agent. And when he got to the meeting, one of the executives he was meeting with was like, oh, my God, are you Craig from the Amateur Gourmet? That's like, wow, ace in the hole right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So the TV agent was like, what's the Amateur Gourmet? And Craig was like, oh, my partner uh, has this food blog. And so the TV agent reached out to me. He was like, do you have any samples? And I did have samples because I went to NYU and I sent yeah. them to her. And the craziest thing that happened to me, and it's never happened again, and I haven't been hired again, so this t- gives you context, yeah. uh, was the very first job she sent me out for was The Real O'Neills, and I got mm-hmm. hired right away. So then I got to write for that show for two seasons. I wrote three three episodes. That's like amazing. Yeah, that, and it's three seasons or two seasons. Great. Yeah, and it, it was like getting dropped into the lion's den. I mean, yeah. TV writers' rooms are no joke, and it's like I mean, it's joke 
filled because yeah. you're, you're, it is all a joke. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you're pitching joke, joke, joke. Yeah. But I mean, there's no better feeling than making the room laugh. But there's no worse feeling than pitching something to dead silence. And it, oh. it was. I would go home every night and be like tearing my hair out. Like, oh my god, what did I screw up today? What did I do? Oh my gosh. Uh, but I got much better at writing. It really helped me with structure. And it just gave me a lot of confidence as a writer, too. So not to get all script notes on this episode, but when you <laughs> when you do uh, a room and you're, like, writing yes. uh, jokes, do you have to break a, an episode, too? Is that with yes. 30 minutes? So explain that. I think our <laughs> listeners might. We're, like, all fans of TV. We, like, consume it all the time. But, like, we ne- I rarely get to talk to an actual TV writer. So what's breaking a story all about? Well, usually it starts. It's called blue skying. So you sit around the yeah. table, like, sort of like, okay, we should do a prom episode where Kenny, mm-hmm. the gay kid, is going to go to a prom. So, like, you know, what, what are some... Some ideas and someone's like, "What if he brings a girl and then uh, comes out to her at the prom or whatever?" Mm-hmm. So people just kind of loosely come up with ideas, and then then the ones that get the biggest laughs start to go up on the board. Then it starts to get broken down in terms of okay, well, Act One is when he asks her to the prom. Act Two is the prom, and Act Three is like her heartbroken, like crying in yeah. the parking lot. Like that's not even an episode. <laughs> that's just yeah. an example. And then it's sort of like doing the beats. Like okay, like well, yeah. Scene One, Act One, and then like what's your B story? What's your C story? Mm-hmm. What, what are we doing with the mother character? What are we doing with the aunt character? What are we doing with the brother character? You know, you have to service all the actors. You have to thematically make it all link up and then you really have to I mean the real art of TV writing writing a TV comedy is taking like a sharp left turn like I think The Simpsons is the show that does it the best Mm -hmm. and it's been on the longest but it's like you think the show is about Homer you know getting fired at work but then it ends up being about like Maggie like becoming president like you know (laughs) like usually want to just take people by surprise and Mm -hmm. not you don't want them to feel like, oh, I see where this one's going. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot to it. And and then you go away and write a script for an episode. Once they, they assign you, the writer, an episode, and you go and write the actual dialogue. Yes, but the truth is they do all the hard work for you in the room because by the time you go off and write an episode, literally every scene is broken down to the yeah. – not just even like – like who's in the scene it's like this is what needs to happen in the scene so it's pretty easy not easy but it's like you go off and you just have to write the dialogue yeah it's like writing the dialogue but you've got the general like the the beats and all that okay Mm -hmm. so let's get back to food like so when you're in the rare room we've had phil rosenthal a friend of mine on the show i'm sure you know phil from la stuff he's talked about food in the the everybody loves raymond room um you know ordering deli i feel like he had a lot of pride about the quality (laughs) of food in his room which i think is fair Uh so what was the quality of the food like in the o'neill's room it's funny. I feel like the younger generation was interested in salads and <laughs> healthy foods. The older generation wanted burgers and like yeah. pad thai. So there was always real like <laughs> tension when the when it was because everybody got a turn to choose what they wanted for lunch. Yeah. And so like me as a staff writer, it was like all those heads were turning at me. Like, what are you going to pick, Adam? Are you yeah. going to do a greasy burger like for, to please this crowd, or are you going to do like a salad? And my favorite was always Mendocino Farms, which was the salad place. Cause, yeah. You know, because what you end up doing in the writer's room is, like, you start out virtuous in the middle of the day, but by, like, 5 o'clock, they used to have these Trader Joe's peanut butter cups, like the dark chocolate Wait, ones. they used to have? You mean they have? Well, And yeah. they're always around, oh, and yeah. I can't buy them. I, I know. Yeah, and yeah. I would, like... I would take like three out of the bag and put them next to my little yellow legal pad Ooh. and be like, you're allowed to have three today. Look and at your very Barack Obama, President <laughs> Obama with those, you know, a very specific number. He was like Mr. Six Almonds. You're like three. But by the end, I was like eating like 12 of them every day. So. <laughs> 
Uh, I love that peanut butter cup. I'm uh, Anna and I uh, used to always talk about peanut butter cups in previous episodes. I'm sure our listeners <laughs> realize that this is a near and dear topic to me. Oh, good. Yeah, they're delicious. Um, let's get into some questions about food and television because I, and, and actually Hollywood and food because I want to know, you know, what does Hollywood get right about food? I, I think it's sort of what I was talking about earlier about Calvin Trillin, about mm-hmm. the link between f- basically food as a metaphor. Um, you know, I think I think <laughs> yeah. like a great example is like Artie Bucco on The Sopranos and <sighs> sort of what he represented to Tony and like sort of the, the idea of comfort and family. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not so much about like how did he make that pasta dish? It's more about what does that pasta represent to Tony, um, you know, in the context of everything that's happening. So I think Hollywood knows how to use food in its storytelling in a way that makes it poignant or makes mm-hmm. it um, meaningful. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, are you going to ask what it doesn't get? Right? I mean, yeah, I think that uh, there's clearly like like there's issues of inaccuracy. There's like clearly like when when you when you sit down to a restaurant, your food arrives within like three minutes, you know, of dialogue, and that's always uh, we don't we know that it doesn't happen. Yes, Adam, what 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 does Hollywood get wrong? I will tell you specifically what it gets wrong. It's it's, it's um, Meryl Streep, and it's complicated making <laughs> croissants on a date with Steve Martin. Because you cannot make croissants on a date. It's just not possible. She's like, let me whip up some croissants. And then she goes into the kitchen and starts, like, rolling out dough. And it's like, are you crazy? Girl needs a sheeter, man. She's (laughs) not hand-rolling croissants. No, I think there is a sheeter, actually, in that scene because I watched it again. But even so, it's like, you have to let it rise. You have to do all these triple folds. It's like, that would take, like, eight hours. So... I know it's not a broad answer, but it's a very specific answer, and it bothers me to know. I, lo- I love that. I feel like uh, food inaccuracies in film would be a great uh, s- substack or, yeah. or, or blog. Somebody should do it. Someone should do it. Okay, let's talk about your time at the Food Network. And I, I, you've written about this, or I, I've heard you on a show. Like you've you've been open about this. Yeah. So you worked at the Food Network. You were you had a show at the Food Network, like. Take us back to that era. I would love to get that story out. It's pretty great. Well, I have to be clear. I had a web show at the Food oh, Network. So. Oh. I mean, like, this was like, before, like, like Netflix when everything was on the web. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. I had – so I had um, sold my first book. So I wrote a book of essays called The Amateur Gourmet. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually sold it in this building. We're in the Random yeah. House building. Yeah. And the division was called Bantam Dell. Yeah, right. And I put them out of business because <laughs> that book didn't sell very well. You know, we, we, we have some hits and we have some misses here. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you did not literally put a company out of business. I but. don't know. It's possible. Um, <laughs> but anyway, a, a woman had gotten a job at the Food Network whose job was to like bring, you know, develop their digital division. And she discovered me and was like, I love you. You're, and she, I remember she called me adorkable. She's like, you're adorkable. And so, That's such a, and wow. so they basically, the very first idea was that they wanted me to host like a daily show kind of show about the Food Network where I just basically like sat at a desk and like made jokes about Giada De Laurentiis and at the time Mario Batali. And then we actually taped a pilot of that and it was terrible. Wait, and this was like unscripted? You were supposed to just No, like, it was riff? scripted. No, oh. it was scripted, but still yeah, it was just cheesy yeah. and awful. And I was yeah. like, I don't think this is good. And and nobody thought it was good. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. And then they called me back and they're like, okay, now we want to just do more of a spontaneous thing where you just interview people. So day one, they picked me <laughs> up in a car and they drove me to Upfronts. I don't know if they were Upfronts or just yeah. like, it was basically Alton Brown, who you just interviewed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rachel Ray and Bobby Flay were all in one building together. Yeah. And they were like, okay, Adam, go. Like, go interview them. Oh, my goodness. And I just like, it was this dweeby little like 20-something <laughs> and I like, marched up to Alton. Now, I called him the wrong name. You did? Okay, I called him Alton. Wait, how did you pronounce it? I, I think I said Alton. 
Alton. I, so I think I said Alton. So too. did you go Alton? Did you say Alton? Maybe somebody grabbed my arm and was like, "It's Alton! It's Alton!" Like, like wow. one of the producers, like, and I was just like, my heart was beating like oh this. Oh my gosh! And then, um, <laughs> and then like Bobby Flay was actually very nice. But then yeah. Rachel Ray, I'm, I, this was this was actually pretty funny. I sat down with her. I was like, "Hi, I'm Adam." She's like, "Hi, I'm Rachel." And they were like, "Hold for you know, we're setting up the camera." And then we just or, or hold before you know, don't start yet. Mm-hmm. But I was just sitting there in silence with Rachel Ray for like thirty seconds. She was literally just staring into space, and I was staring into space. Yeah. And then we started the interview, and it was fine. But when it was over, I said to my producer, "I was like, you know, it would be really funny is if you put those thirty seconds on the internet, which they did. Oh gosh. And uh, and then that was taken down. So I had like all these kind of things where I was trying to go viral. And the most viral I ever went was when I went to the um, South Beach Food and Wine Festival yes. and discovered Anthony Bourdain <laughs> in the kitchen of a restaurant. He was really drunk, and I. <laughs> basically said like tell us what you hate about the food network oh gosh and he's like serious? and he was like sandra lee should be waterboarded i remember and oh, it was just gosh. like a rant and so they go to for him yeah and they yeah. put they put it on the homepage of the food network um because they were trying to rack up hits and it got all these links and then i think bobby flay demanded that it get taken down yeah and there you go and then i lost my job soon after that yeah i i feel like there's <clears throat> probably a series of events that led to you losing your job and, <laughs> and it sounds like one of them was like what a what a ill-fated idea i guess like maybe <laughs> yeah. the instinct was correct that like, we need someone to like a com- comedian to like cover the yeah. cover the industry but man did you did you have any like um like any like actual cooking like moments were you cooking with any of these guys it's so funny so um the food network had a deal i should say food network they always corrected me it's not the, the food network it's food network oh food network yes. right of course <laughs> a food network had a deal with the las vegas food and wine festival where every year they sent a celebrity or two to the festival and that year, whoever they were going to send fell through. And so they, were, they said, we're going to send celebrity chef Adam Roberts <laughs> to the food and wine festival. They were like, who? And so like there were all these events with celebrity chef Adam Roberts. Like, in, And one of them was a cactus cooking competition in front of Caesar's Palace. And it was me against Lorraine Bracco. <laughs> wow. Well, so speaking of Sopranos, I mean, that, that, yeah. that seems like a very, very ill-advised <laughs> talent lineup. Well, it just kind of shows, it shows you how like fame works. It's like you yeah. just decide somebody. He's famous and like they're yeah. famous. and I remember there was like a cocktail hour. People paid money at the Mirage Hotel to get drinks with celebrity chef Adam Roberts, yeah. and so <laughs> there was even a cocktail called the Adam Roberts, which I don't remember what it was. So it was just so surreal. I mean, I really felt like I was dreaming half the time, and then yeah. when it was over, it was just all over. Yeah, I, it. oh, it, this is definitely for the memoir. The like, yeah. more of these these stories, I love this. So you've recently, it feels like you've maybe rebooted yeah. Amateur Gourmet because like you took some time off, you were working on other projects, but mm-hmm. like you are back, and we'll link to it in the show notes. You have a Substack, mm-hmm. and you're on Substack, and you're really putting out terrific articles uh, and podcasts and videos. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. No, I mean, Adam, it's it's really impressive. You're putting out a lot of work, and it's all really high quality. And I want to just get a sense, um, like getting into Substack, you know, where where do you see this going? Like, was this building your community and getting subscribers and getting them into your world? Is that been the whole goal of this? I think for me, it's writing for an audience that wants to hear my voice. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that was the relief of Substack. Because, I mean, blogging, by the time I stopped blogging, which, again, yeah, I mean, you were correct. Like, when I started writing for TV, I got when I got that TV job, I was like, bye, food world. Yeah, like, right. See ya. We're all hoping one day to, like, say <laughs> bye, food. Yeah, which little <laughs> did I know. I mean, I had a friend at the time because I changed my handle, which was so stupid. I changed it from Amateur Gourmet to Hey Adam Roberts because I was just trying to become my name. Oh, yeah. And I remember I had 
had a friend, Price, who was like, are you sure you want to give up that handle? He's like, you know, you built that whole thing. I was like, I'm never going back. Like that's a, <laughs> And then like three years later, I was like begging Twitter to give me back my handle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of exhausted by the end with blogging because yeah. if you write a post on a blog, it lives forever on the internet and you have trolls and you have people linking to it. Like, who, like, who the hell does this guy think he is? Whereas on Substack, it's like you're writing to people who want to get what you're saying. And I love it. I have to say there's something about Substack that's that's reminding me of the early days of blogging. It feels very liberating. It mm-hmm. feels exciting. It feels like I I feel like people are really engaged. Yeah. I feel like I feel like I can put anything I want on there. Um, and it feels I don't know. It, it feels safer in a way, but not in a way that makes it boring. It just makes it safer in the sense that I feel liberated to say what I truly feel. Yeah. Like I could say something on there. Like I mean, I just ate at a bunch of restaurants in New York, and I'll write my newsletter tomorrow about where I ate. And maybe I'll like I went last night to Lodi. Mm-hmm. Um, and the- you're like you're you look like you're you didn't have a good time. I'm just like reading your face. I loved Lodi. Okay, sorry. Delicious. I'm not trying to cause trouble. No, no. I, is I, it Lodi or Lodi? Uh, no, that was it. It was pronunciation. Okay. No, is it Lodi? Uh, I think it's Lodi, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the food was delicious, but the gelato... So they, at the end, the guys, like, the waiter was like, do you guys want to get the gelato? It's, like, our only dessert. I was like, sure, we'll get the gelato. And it was, like, a thing of gelato, and it was $25. Yeah, so that's I, why I, you're wincing. Yeah, that was why I was <laughs> wincing. But, you know, it's like, I'll put that in my newsletter... And I will, I will feel fine about that. But if uh, on the flip side, if I had done a blog post yeah. about that, I would have felt awful because maybe Eater New York would have linked to it and been like, amateur gourmet, like, you know, slams glow dive. I mean, like things like that used to happen all the time and I would get in trouble and it's like, I don't want to deal with that. Anymore. Yeah, that's a little bit of anxiety when you have to like look around your, look, look around the corner for who's going to snark at you. And I guess, yeah, the Substack is like for your, your subscribers mm-hmm. and your, your paid subscribers and your free subscribers. Definitely check it out. I want to hear about this broccoli. You did a video about broccoli <laughs> that was a viral broccoli hit back in the day, and you've revived it? Sort of. I did a post about broccoli. Post, right. It okay. was a post. Yeah, and I um, it was when Ina Garten roasted broccoli for the first time, and yeah. I repeated it. So basically I stole it from Ina Garten. Yeah. But I had never roasted broccoli before, and this was like back in 2010. I think it was right like when roasting vegetables yes. was starting to take off. And I called it the best broccoli of your life and put it on on uh, my blog and just like took off and it became like my top post of all time and for a long time it was the number one search result when you search broccoli recipe what's what's funny now is that like another blogger did a post called yes seriously this is the best broccoli (laughs) of your life and she basically like quoted my recipe so like basically did to me what I did to Ina Garten and now like that's the top result but I made a video recently for my YouTube channel where I recreated the best broccoli of your life and I did some riffs on it where I did like um, David Chang's um uh, what is it? It's like his toasted rice. Uh, no, it's like his Brussels sprout roasted Brussels sprout sauce with uh-huh. like fish sauce and stuff. Yeah, and then yeah. I did one with like feta cheese and tomatoes and stuff. So it's just a, a bunch of variations on roasted broccoli. Let's go back to 2010 because I agree with you. It sounds crazy for maybe some of our listeners, maybe younger listeners, that like it was like br- roasting vegetables wasn't that yeah. big. It's so true. I agree with you fully. I think the idea of the sheet pan, putting that into the oven and roasting vegetables with a little bit of olive oil and lemon, not being done in 2010, at least Mm -hmm. in terms of home cooking. Of course, like Ruth Rachel was doing a gourmet and all that stuff, but like mainstream food media not covering this like big roasting pan thing, right? Yeah. And I think that it's transformative because, I mean, like my husband, Craig, like grew up hating 
yeah. uh, broccoli. Like, he hated broccoli. And I think it's probably because it was frozen broccoli. And then when I made this, like, he, his eyes lit up. He's like, I love this. Like, you should make this all the time. And it's like, oh, this, this is a, a big deal. Yeah, those, those vegetables, like Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and broccoli and mm-hmm. even, like, some types of squash. Yeah. Not that popular with a lot of, like, eaters then. And mm-hmm. then this whole idea of the roasting changed i mean we're putting like tahini and roasted broccoli these days and like it's like a whole other era of roasting vegetables totally and i think Ottolenghi too has a lot to do with that i think he's really a big roast yodam <clears throat> you're right yodam is the is the definitely uh credit for this like l- large-scale roasting yes. and melissa clark in some respects oh too. yeah there's uh, a lot of roasters out a lot there. of roasters <laughs> roasting um i'd like to hear a little bit about um los angeles because you you live there. Um, well, you're living kind of a bicoastal life like, right now. I'm mostly by... in L.A., though, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have to ask about what's going what's going down in L.A. in terms of restaurants. Because you, you're definitely uh, – you write about home cooking, but I think your your podcast and your your, webs- your sub-stack is covering the restaurant scene. So what's what's good right now in Los Angeles? Um, well, it's – L.A. Is, is an exciting place to be. I mean, I have to say, like, being in New York right now – I know you just went to Laverne Den. Yeah, right. And I went to Laverne Den for my friend's birthday. So I'll start by complimenting New York by saying I don't think there's anything in LA close to that. I mean, I guess Providence is the restaurant that comes the closest. But yeah. there's something about fine dining in New York that just feels very natural and like an extension of the city. Whereas in LA, I feel like it's very uncommon to run into somebody who like will have gone out to like a fine dining restaurant the night before. And most things in LA are pretty casual. Mm-hmm. So I'll pay the I'm, I'm going to start by saying New York, I feel like it's it's the most exciting place to eat like upscale yeah. fine dining food. But I will say LA right now feels like the most exciting place food wise. In general. In general. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, and I think it's because there's so many different tiers of kinds of things happening like whether it's like you know um pearl river deli in chinatown which is just opened and is serving Mm -hmm. incredible chinese food whether it's um you know whatever taco truck is popular right now i think el russo is really big right now you have that but then you have a place like horses which just opened up on sunset which is like really cool chefy food yeah and a former bar that is it was called the pikey and and now it's got kind of like very like modern Mm -hmm. vibe to it and it's packed with people and it's really fun and there's exciting. like four chefs at horses yeah like four chefs in the kitchen i think so yeah and it's really cool i went there before it was like a like a scene like somebody's yeah. like do you want to go to horses I'm like sure yeah and i didn't quite because i know tejal rao just wrote about it for the new york times and was really praising the food yeah when i ate there i was like oh this is pretty good like i didn't get that it was yeah. just like groundbreaking um but like to me like places like bavel um yeah. or bavel um and Bestia, I mean, Bestia is one of the most exciting restaurants yeah. you can eat in. And the, I think the food at Bestia, to me, is as good as any in New York, any Italian you can get in New York. I mean, it's like incredible pastas, incredible yeah. pizzas, incredible cocktails. I think the trend I'm noticing in both cities is this whole like fresh pasta with gelato. Like in in LA, we have um, Antico Nuovo. Which is like uh, the new version of Antico, okay. which is basically fresh pasta and then homemade gelato. And then here I just went to Chisiamo, oh, yeah, which is Danny Mar- Meyer's restaurant, yeah. which is basically fresh pasta and homemade gelato. Yeah. So I feel like that's a trend. And you've got Lilia, too, in yes. uh, Brooklyn, Missy Robbins, uh, doing the same one, too. Great observation, I agree. And I think back to La Bernardin, I, I was celebrating as well. And I feel I hadn't been to uh, that kind of meal since pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. I certainly hadn't had a tasting menu like that. And um, I just have to praise uh, the way that restaurant has kind of come back to life mm-hmm. um, post-pandemic with, between service and uh, just having the most exquisite seafood experience you're going to have. So I agree, like, fine dining is really can be extremely exciting in New York. 
And the other thing about Le Bernardin is just like you don't leave feeling disgusting. Like, no, it's all very light and beautiful and satiating, but not yeah. like loaded with butter and not like you don't feel like you're you know eating like eight sticks of butter. Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, and certain European uh, centric uh, cooking uh, tasting menus will, will will leave you that way. What about uh, in Los Angeles when you're when you're cooking? And so I, I'm just, like, fascinated with food shopping in Los Angeles between the farmer's markets and the specially held food stores mm-hmm. and even, like, Gelson's, yes. which I think, like, if you hit Gelson's in January, February, you're going to get the most incredible citrus. Yes. So what's it like food shopping and cooking from that food shopping in Los Angeles compared to being in New York and the East Coast? Is it as good as, as I, like, envision it or am I just, like, projecting? I will say that the thing I miss the most about the East Coast is seasons. Like, yeah. true, like that feeling, because I used to go to the farmer's market in Union Square and that feeling of like going in the winter, the dead of winter, and it's just like nothing there except yeah. for like cider and like garlic, maybe. And <laughs> yeah. then that moment when you get to the farmer's market and you start to see asparagus and sugar snap peas, like there is nothing like that in LA. There's like little versions of that. However, LA is like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's truly like a bounty of beautiful, beautiful produce. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so lucky because I live in Atwater Village, mm-hmm. which is a, a near Silver Lake, and we have our own little cute, adorable farmer's market every Sunday. And I go there and I like get, I mean, talk about like sugar snap peas, yeah. asparagus. But I mean, in winter, you get blood oranges, cara cara oranges, pomelos, you know, any citrus you can mm-hmm. imagine. We have a Meyer lemon tree that we live in a fourplex and like yeah. in our next to our building is a Meyer lemon tree. My friend uh, Tony has a loquat tree. Mm-hmm. Um, my across the street neighbor has an orange tree. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's a bounty. And it's like in the summer, it's like chilies. I mean, um, tomatoes of every stripe. You have tomatoes like mostly year round. Yeah, I mean, it seems like. And that's for us. We have such a small window on the East Coast and in the Midwest as well. And it's just, I mean, the fruit and the yeah. just everything in L.A. and California, produce-wise, is pretty extraordinary, I, I will that. say. It's hard to deny that. Um, let's switch gears and talk about cookbooks because okay. I, I think you're, you're, you're publishing one in the fall and we're going to get to that. But, you know, you write about cookbook authors and you've had plenty in your, your own podcast. Mm-hmm. But are there some cookbooks that you're really enjoying? Could be classics, could be new ones mm. these days. Well, I just got Olia Hercules, um, her book Summer Food. I think it's called Summer or Summer Kitchen. Yeah, Summer Kitchen. Um, and yep. she's from Ukraine, yep. and so it's very you know it's moving, um, and it feels kind of vital right now to yep. be reading that. Um, not just well, yes, because of what's going on in Ukraine, but as a way to sort of the way that she celebrates her culture and, and showcases her culture. It just it it feels mm-hmm. really relevant, and it feels like something I really want to read about and understand um i really like eric kim's new book mm-hmm. korean american yeah he was on the podcast last fall oh, okay. absolutely love eric yep yeah and i think it's it's exciting like it really feels like this is where we're at right now in 2022 it's sort of like sort of a it's kind of like a dovetails dovetails nicely with crying in h mart which i just read mm-hmm. sort of about the korean american experience and yeah. the, un- the unique cuisine that he sort of is writing about which is a mixture of both american and korean food yeah um, love that book. It's such a wonderful book. I mean, just I love it. So yeah, I, I love it too. Leave me speechless a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um, and then in terms of cook, I mean, I just I collect cookbooks. So yeah. I'm always going through my collection. I have, I mean, I have Uta Hagen's cookbook. Speaking of theater and food, yeah. Um, it's called Love for Cooking. I have Fun. Vincent Price's cookbook. Oh wow. So I, have, I, I mean, you'll have to come over sometime. In I LA. would love to see yeah and go through them. But I'm always looking for you. That's another thing about LA. Is there's a lot of used bookstores there that have great used cookbook collections, and so that's another thing that I really like about LA. Well, nothing ages in LA 
I mean, it's it's like literally dry. Yeah. And there's no humidity that so things don't actually mold and mm-hmm. get yellow. But also like there's just like an older population because people move from all over the world to move, live in Southern California and retire there. Yeah. And so you have like I agree like Palm Springs has got the most incredible used bookstore mm-hmm. and and I, I feel or Ojai as well oh yeah wonderful used bookstores up there so are there any other uh, vintage books that you just are really like a Grail that you've been able to get oh my gosh I mean I'm trying to think I mean I have some uh, I have Craig Claiborne's memoir A Feast Made for Laughter. Which is wow. a fascinating read. Um, it's not really like talked about, but he was a gay man who was also the first food critic, basically in yeah. America. He invented the form. Yeah, he invented Truly. the form. But to, I mean, I know I know there have been books written about him, but to read his own memoir is really really interesting, especially like hearing him wrestle with his sexuality. And mm-hmm. he, there's like a really odd scene in it where he takes his mother out to dinner and basically like breaks up with her, <laughs> like basically says, "I never want to see you again." And just like so, I, that's a really interesting book. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of cookbooks. I mean, I have so many. It's yeah. hard to just say. I mean, I always say Zuni Cafe, but I'm starting to feel like that's the cliche answer. No, I think Zuni is certainly uh, a legend, and and many of our listeners might not know about Zuni Cafe. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what my favorite is right now? I have a great answer. Um, Margot Henderson is married to Fergus Henderson. Yeah. And she has a book called um, You're All Invited. I love British cookbooks. Mm-hmm. If it comes from the U.K., I love it automatically. I, they just publish the most beautiful books there. They look different. Illustrated they, covers. Yes. Lots I, of illustrated covers. Yeah. I wish there was a store in L.A. that only sold those books. Like, wow. like I had a pipeline here. Because yeah. I don't think you can get them on Amazon or wherever, like, easily. I feel the guys at Now Serving could probably hook you up. Yeah, maybe. Those guys are great. You go over to the Now yeah, Serving. Yeah, I like Now Serving. Yeah. Um, but uh, You're All Invited is a, is basically just like her it's, – it's, it's meant it's, – it's like basically scaled up – different versions of recipes so it's like tomato soup for four but here's how to make it for eight here's how to make it for 16 Um, so it's like if you want to have dinner parties that's a great book well you're publishing a book in the fall it's called give me swiss charts to broadway the broadway lovers cookbook and uh first off you wrote it with gideon glick like shout out gideon (laughs) glick he's he was a a recurring character on mrs mazel the famous mrs mazel and i love that character but he's also appeared in spring awakening Mm -hmm. he was in the in the broadway cast and had just an like a really critical role in that in that amazing musical and so you and gideon like linked up to write a cookbook so how the hell did this happen such a funny story. I mean, this is like one of the silver linings of the pandemic for us because we were just, I mean, I was, as, as I'm sure everyone was, holed up in my apartment. I was just on Twitter a lot and all those things. Yeah. And um, basically, Gideon and I were Twitter friends. We'd met in real life like once or twice. Um, but he tweeted something about like Bernadette Pizza. Like, I, should I write a children's <laughs> book called Bernadette Pizza? And I was like, yeah, you should. And then he DM'd me. He's like, do you know how to do that? Like, how would I publish that? And I was like, well... I mean, like, I don't know exactly how to publish that, but I was like, I, I like the, the idea of puns on Broadway shows. Yeah. And, and so we kind of started going back and forth. And then for like a month or two, we just texted like funny puns on Broadway shows. And it was like, you know, um, Sunday in the Pork with George, yeah, yeah. The Sound of Moussaka, um, <laughs> My Fair Lady Fingers. And so we were just like making each other laugh, like texting each other. And finally, I had just emailed just haphazardly I just wrote my literary agent who sold my previous cookbook and I was like and I know that she loves theater so I was like is this anything I was like she's like I love this like let me try to sell this so we put a proposal together we sold it and then the really fun part was like developing those recipes because like for Sunday in the pork with George I was like okay what is that like what's that gonna be 
And um, and so I made pork meatballs with flecks of color in it because it's like about a pointillist painter. So you're actually mm. using the content of the of the musical, yes. so that you know that that you know I think of Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. like that role of his like in New York yes. for, for years. And but it was about George Seurat, right, yeah. the pointillist artist. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually taking the content of the, of the musical. Yes. And you're going to see Little Shop of Horrors tonight. Yeah, we can like talk about that all day. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. my but wife Tamara's uh, her one of her favorite musicals outside of Spring Awakening. That's why I think Gideon is one of her favorites. So I'm, this is shout to Tamara. And in the book, we have Little Chop of Horrors, mm-hmm. and has um, candied beets in there, sort of like the digested, partially digested dentist. Dentist. Oh, <laughs> the Steve Martin film yes. character. What a great movie. Love that movie. Um, so you have fifty recipes. Yes, fifty That's recipes. So fun. It's great. I mean, I, th- I I'm hoping. It's, like, going to hit that sweet spot of, like, perfect gift for, like, your musical theater-loving kid. And I think it's, like, a good gift for, you know, theater people who like to cook and people who like to cook who like to listen. I mean, I love to listen to musicals while I cook. So, to me, this was, like, such a dream come true to write Mm -hmm. this. It was really fun. Do you have a favorite musical that maybe didn't make the cut that you couldn't figure out a pun? Maybe we can workshop a pun right now? There were a few where we couldn't get a pun. In fact, like this year, I texted Gideon when the Tonys were happening, and I was like, (laughs) we should do some puns on the current crop of musicals on Twitter and just like promote our book. Strange Loop, right? Strange Loop. I was like, Strange Loop de Mer. (laughs) Oh, Loop de Mer. Oh, (laughs) you're going there. Yeah. But beyond that, it was like, I couldn't think of one for, what were the other ones? The Bob Dylan musical? Um, now, the Bob Dylan musical. Yeah, it just closed. Oh wow, missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what it was called. So that's not a good sign. Like Company is on Broadway right yeah. now. So I was like Crumpany, like yeah, Crumb Cake. It's the single, the single, like the Rent. Like I, yeah, I feel like rent. you can't. Oh, we have Rent. We have Rental Soup, like Lentil Soup. Oh gosh, you, this is why you're making the big bucks. I love this. <laughs> the big bucks. <laughs> I can't wait to, to check this book out. Thank you. And so, how did you develop the recipes? Was there like a method? Honestly, it was, like, just free association. Like, I would start at my computer, and I would think about the musical. So Little Chop, I was like, okay, clearly there has to be something that looks bloody in there. Oh. With like, but it also, like, vegetables because it's a plant. So salad, blood, beets, <laughs> chop salad, yeah. chop Little Chop. So, I mean, like, it's just like, things like that. And Sunday in the Pork with George, of course, was, like, yeah. you know, chop. Like, I was, like, yellow peppers and yeah. um, red peppers and lots of green herbs and with the pork meatballs to get those, col- you know, the flecks of color and light. Um, so yeah. How did Gideon play into the mix? Was he, was he helping you develop too? Yeah. And he tested the recipes and more importantly, like what's great about the book is it's filled with Broadway trivia. So every chapter not only, um, includes a recipe, but it has a head note that tells you all about the history of the show. And he does like extra bonus notes at the end of every chapter that tells you some trivia about the show. That's really fun. How, what a fun project. And so that's out in the fall. Yeah. October. I love that. We're going to definitely, we'll, we'll bring it back to the podcast and we'll talk about it. Oh, thank you. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, Adam, if you could write a cookbook or a food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money, and without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, Mm -hmm. what would that book be? Well, my book is less that, because I thought about, I've been thinking about this a little bit and like, I mean, the fantasy would be to, like, travel the world for free and get to cook everywhere and learn a lot of, lot of stuff, but I'm sure that's a pretty common answer. It's a theme, you know, yeah. like uh, like unlimited travel, yeah, for sure. But you're thinking of this more. You're going to the next level. I appreciate this. <laughs> Taking but it deeper. Th- there's an idea I have for a book that has nothing to do with money or time. It's more just, like, I don't think this would ever sell. Um, and it's called Food People and Their Bodies. And it's it's based on the fact that, like, the most common question 
I get asked and a lot of people get asked is like, how do you not weigh 5,000 pounds? And it's like this question about like, how do you cook all that? How do you use that much butter and stuff? And I just kind of want to read a book or write a book. I think I want to write the book that I want to read, mm-hmm. which is just like interviews with all kinds of food people, all shapes and sizes, whether they're food writers, whether they're chefs. And that just sort of documents like what do they cook? And then how do they do they exercise? Do they not exercise? How do you feel? How do they feel about their bodies? Like, do you, you know, are you is it something mm-hmm. that you feel confident about? Like just sort of like exploring that link because it's never talked about. It's a pretty taboo subject. Yeah. But it's such an important part of this business. And I think it's something that people are so curious about. Um, and yet I don't think that would ever sell. So. No, I, I disagree fully. I think body positivity and food writing is, yeah. is something that isn't talked about enough. And I think that in talking about like he- general health, mm-hmm. but like breaking through the noise of like crack science and junk science, yes. which happens a lot in, you know, in certain sectors of publishing. And I think, you know, you've got humor mm-hmm. on your side. It, it can't, I mean, I think you got, I'm just like, we're workshopping this. Right? Yeah. Well, I, think, I think the goal of the book would be to be completely non-judgmental and just illust- mm-hmm. illustrate, illustrative, what's how do you say that word? Illustrative. Illustrative yeah. of just the choices that we all make and, and, and how we choose. I mean, I, you know, it's like I have people in L.A. I, I've hosted dinner parties where people come over and like I'm cook. I make a beautiful dessert and they're like, oh, I'm not eating dessert. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like I yeah. spent like hours making this and it's like, yeah. who are you? Yeah. But it's like I just I just find it fascinating, like the choices people make about food um, and what that says about them and how they think about it. And, you know. I just want to know more about that. I mean, there's also the prescriptive side of it, like which is like the food writer's diet. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, like how do how do you literally like I how do you know. eat in a day? Yeah, I, I I love this. I hope this happens. Yeah, I would. I'd be happy to write that because I'd be so curious about like the process of doing it. So, Adam Roberts, thank you for joining <laughs> the Taste Podcast. Uh, thank you so much. This is really fun. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.